The following message is from the audio teaching library of the Briarwood Pulpit, a ministry of the Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. Our speaker is Dr. Harry Reeder, Senior Pastor of Briarwood Presbyterian Church. It is our hope and prayer that this message will equip and encourage you in your walk with Christ, and as a result, you will be used by our Lord as an instrument of change to further His kingdom and bring honor and glory to the name of Christ. Here now is our pastor teacher, Harry Reeder. Would you take your copies of God's Word and turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 4, just a couple of thoughts before we move to the charges, uh, to the ordained, uh, to the those who are being ordained and installed, and the charges to the congregation. Uh, a couple of thoughts on leadership, if I could give to you, from 2 Timothy and uh, go with me, if you would, to chapter, uh, chapter 3, 2 Timothy chapter 3. This is always a very special time for me <clears throat> because I get to talk about some things that I don't normally talk about uh, in preaching, although do reference from time to time. And, and that's the matter of one of the very important doctrines in the Scripture. It's uh, what we call ecclesiology, the doctrine of the church, or how does Christ, the head of the church, govern his church? Now, one of the things that we're always ready to acknowledge is that the doctrine of church government is not a primary doctrine. In other words, uh, every Bible doctrine, every single Bible doctrine is uh, important. There's no doubt about that. There's nothing superficial in Scripture. Uh, all scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness that the man of God may be adequate and equipped for every good work. That's why the Bible tells us in discipleship that we are to, in discipleship, teach all that Jesus commanded because all of it's important. But the Bible is also important, uh, is clear that some things are more important than other things. In other words, some doctrines are primary, some are secondary, and some are tertiary. And it's important to keep that proportionality in mind when you're teaching and preaching the Word of God. For instance, in 1 Corinthians 15, it says, Paul says, I delivered to you that which is of first importance, the gospel. Now, when you see a statement like that, you immediately know a couple of things. Number one, the gospel is important. That's obvious. In fact, it's not just important. It is of primary importance. In fact, we might even say it's the first of the first things, the gospel message. And uh, that is so absolutely crucial in the life and ministry of Christ's church. But when you see something that says of first importance, that doesn't say that other doctrines are unimportant, but it does say that that particular doctrine is more important, which means the other, other doctrines would be of what we might call secondary importance. Probably the rule of thumb to use with that is doctrines of primary importance are those that if you get those wrong, you can't be saved. Those are primary doctrines. Secondary doctrines are doctrines that are important. They're good for the, your Christian life. They're good for the life of the church. They're important. God has them to make us adequate and equipped for every good work. But not all of them are as important in that if you get it wrong, you can still be saved. And one of those secondary doctrines is 
church government. And so basically you've got three forms of church government out there. Uh, one is congregational church government where the authority uh, by concept rests in the congregation. And then you've got the bishopric system whereby concept the authority rests at the level of bishopric oversight. And so you've got churches like the Episcopal Church, the Lutheran Church, the um, uh, and of course the most obvious one is the Roman Church, uh, whereby those are bishopric systems, like a pyramid. Think of it this way. And in a congregational system, conceptually, you turn the pyramid upside down so that the ultimate authority is in the congregation. Now, I have my critiques of those two. I recognize these are my brothers and sisters in the Lord, and we have been in debates on whether those are biblical, uh, uh, faithful to the overall principles of church government or not. Um, But um, what we are here to observe is this secondary but important doctrine of the governance of Christ's church in a system that we identify as Presbyterian. It comes from the Greek word for elder. It is elder oversight of Christ's church. That Greek word is presbyteros. It's translated in your Bible, elder. There are a number of titles for the office of elder in your Bible. Sometimes elders are called, um, sometimes elders in the Bible are called overseers or bishops. Sometimes they are called stewards. Sometimes they are called shepherds. Sometimes they are called pastors. There are multiple titles for the office of elder, and the reason why is because the office is multifaceted in its, in its oversight of Christ's church. And that office of elder has two categories. There is the teaching elder, that is the minister of the word, and there is the ruling elders, that is the shepherding elders of the flock. Now, shepherding elders can teach, and ruling and teaching elders, pastors, ministers of the word, they shepherd, but they have a primary responsibility. For instance, in the Bible, it says in 1 Timothy 5.17, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who are called to work hard at preaching and teaching. So there is the office of elder, and some elders not only have the honor and responsibility of the office, but they get a second honor, a double honor, and that is support in the office, not because a teaching elder is over the ruling elders, but because of the task that is given to him, and that is the preaching of the Word of God. And we know that faith comes by what? Hearing. And so because the preaching of the word is so important, there are some elders that we remove from normal uh, support um, mechanisms in life and give them support from the church in order that they can give their time to the proper, faithful, effective preaching of the word. So those who work hard at preaching and teaching. So we've got ministers of the gospel. We've got the shepherding elders, teaching elders, ministers of the gospel. We've got shepherding elders and we've got deacons. And of course, you can see the reflection from the Old Testament, can't you? What were the three offices in the Old Testament? You had prophet, you had priest, and you had king. 
And so what do you have in the church? You have the reflections of those office in the new covenant in the new Israel that is drawn from those circumcised of heart, born again from every tribe and nation. And they have those who preach, prophesy, proclaim God's revealed word, the minister elders. You have those who rule over the church and shepherd the church and and rule over it. Those would be the ruling elders of a church. And then the deacons who intercede for the people even as the priests did. So you see prophet, priest, and king reflected in the governance of the church. Now, can I get just a little bit provincial here? After the Reformation, and everybody's working through in the Reformation, we've reclaimed the gospel, we've reclaimed worship, we've reclaimed the sacraments. What about church government? And there was great debates, and so these three forms of government began to develop. The bishopric system, and the um, congregational system, And the Presbyterian system. Now, here's what's interesting. I'm going to make a generalization, but I I will gladly defend it, as I have in other places. Uh, But I acknowledge it is a generalization. In those countries who were blessed by the Reformation, if those countries were dominated by the political concept and system of monarchy, almost all of them developed the bishopric system of government. Because it is monarchical in its, in its structure. And so, you know, what do you have in a monarchy? You got a king and you got princes and you got this. So what do you have in the Episcopal? You've got archbishop, you got bishops, you've got, and then of course in the Roman church, you've got the, uh, the pope and the, and, and the uh, cardinals and then the bishops, etc. And so you see this top down that's tended to develop in churches, uh, that developed state churches that reflected the preference of political oversight. In those countries and those countries that were embracing the democratic concept, not a monarchy, but a democracy concept, they tended to begin to embrace the congregational system. But here is something very interesting. The Presbyterian system had no political um, predecessors, but it created political successors. In fact, it was under the influence of men like James Madison, who studied under John Witherspoon, and others, uh, such as Benjamin Rush, and others who were involved in the formation of this country, that when they were begin to put together a constitutional federal republic, how was this country to be governed? And they said no to a monarchical system. No, the law is king. We won't have a king. The law is king. And they said no to a pure democracy. And the reason why is because they believed the Reformation doctrine of total depravity. And that men have, even saved men, have an inner corruption that they have to deal with. And whenever you govern, you have to have authority. And whenever you have authority, you have to have power. And whenever you have power, there is the tendency of that power to corrupt that principle of corruption. And so they didn't want to trust the majority of a mob rule, nor one individual of a monarchical rule. 
And so they wanted to create a system of accountability and plurality of leadership, whereby the law is that which is supreme and not any one individual. So it's no accident that they basically copied what is known as Presbyterian government. And so you have, like in our situation, we have our local church that's governed by a session. And then our church sends its representatives to the presbytery. And our church is accountable to a presbytery, a regional church called the presbytery. The local church with its session. The regional church with its presbytery, the college of elders. And then we have a general assembly whereby all of our churches send their their commissioners to the general assembly. Is that starting to sound familiar to you? Local government. Then state government, then federal government, and the greater power is supposed to be in those constitutions that are closer to the people because they have access to them. And then, of course, what about a judicial? You not only have an executive situation, but what about a judicial system? And so you have local courts, that you can then appeal to appeals courts, and then you can appeal to a Supreme Court. And so we see that constantly uh, in, our, in our government. That was borrowed from us, and that if there's a sessional issue and the decision has been made, then the one who was in that process can appeal that decision to a presbytery. And that can be appealed to, a, uh, and that can be appealed to the Supreme Court. So you see executive, you see judicial, and then you see the legislative. And all of that is drawn from those Old Testament principles of legislation, judicial, and, um, and oversight, executive oversight. In fact, that's exactly from the book of Jeremiah is where James Madison quoted those three branches. And none of them were to be over any. They were all interdependent, but none of them were to be hierarchical. And so there was no one person, and everyone that was elected did not take vows to another human being, did not take vows to the people that elected them. They took their vows to the Constitution itself. Well, I say that because you're about to watch this. You're about to hear elders and deacons in this local church take vows to uphold the Constitution of the Presbyterian Church in America. The Book of Church Order and the Westminster Standards. The Book of Church Order with its principles of government, biblical principles of government, biblical principles of worship, and biblical principles of conduct. And then the Westminster Standards with the Confession of Faith and the Larger and Shorter Catechism. Now I know what some of you are sitting out there thinking. You're thinking what I thought. You mean the Bible is not the constitution of, of the Presbyterian Church in America and Briarwood? And I will tell you, no, the Bible is not our constitution. Constitutions, by definition, can be what? This isn't hard. Amended. Have anybody heard of the Bill of Rights and the Ten Amendments there? They can be amended. They can be corrected. They can be changed. Can you amend your Bible? 
No. You see, our Constitution is a governing document whose authority rests in the inerrant infallibility. And any time you change the Constitution, then the body of the church has to appeal to the Scriptures. And I believe this is crucial because every time I looked in the Bible... As I was praying about this, as you know, I was not born into the Presbyterian Church, although uh, we were involved in an independent Presbyterian Church, which is actually a misnomer. But uh, that's where we were. But I, I, I was not raised in in the concept of Presbyterian. I came to it by conviction, and one of those things was this that you're about to bear witness to. One of those things was. One of those things was that every time I looked in the Bible and I saw the word church and I saw the word elder, church was always singular and elder was always plural. No one church in the Bible was ever ruled by one elder. On the contrary, if anyone among you sick, let him call for the elders, plural, of the church, singular. Paul appointed elders, plural, in every church. Paul sent Titus to place elders, plural, in every church in the cities throughout Crete. And so when the Apostle Paul had ministered three years at Ephesus, it says that he left and he called for the elders, plural, of the church, singular, in Ephesus. So what you see in Presbyterian government, first of all, is plurality. Well, Harry, how can you have a body of believers or any organization work with plurality of leadership? Because we have a head of the church. And it's not the pastor. It's not anyone elder. It's not anyone deacon. It's Jesus. And Jesus has given Gifts to men to shepherd, rule, guide, and serve his church. And he has given the congregation the responsibility to, and I quote, select from among yourselves men who are faithful, of good reputation. Those men who are spiritual, who meet those qualifications that are given in First Timothy 3 and in Titus chapter 1. So you not only have plurality, but you also have parity. I would be more than happy to name for you. I've had the privilege to serve here as pastor for 23 years. And I can point out a number of votes in the session where I lost. The senior pastor doesn't get five votes. He gets one. That's it. And he can be on the losing side, although as moderator, I seldom vote, but there have been times I've been asked to vote. But those are, that's because it is the body. And when the body votes, we act as one to own that vote together before the Lord. And that we submit ourselves to one another. So not only did I see plurality in the Presbyterian system, which matched up with the biblical data, not only did I see parity, which enacted, but I also saw diversity. So you've got ministers of the word teaching elders, you've got shepherding elders, and you've got the deacons that are there in order to maintain the administration and the mercy ministry and the stewardship of the church. But then one other thing. 
the thing that clinched it for me was the fact that it was the one system that I saw where everybody is accountable to somebody. Every church is accountable in a presbytery. Every presbytery is accountable in a general assembly. Every member is accountable in a local church. Every elder is accountable. Every deacon is accountable. Every minister. There is nobody. In a bishopric system, when you, uh, when you, when you work a bishopric system, eventually you get to the, <laughs> I'm not being trivial, you get to the top dog. But not in a Presbyterian system. It's three concentric circles of the local church in the Presbytery and in the General Assembly. And so you see the General Assembly in Acts 15. You see the Presbytery in various passages, such as the seven churches at the book of Revelation, where they, where Christ is in the middle of the seven churches. They are called, does anybody remember the picture of the churches in the book of Revelation? What are they called? Lampstands. And where is Jesus? In the middle. So if Jesus is in the middle of seven churches that are lampstand, what's the configuration of the churches? It's got to be a circle. Or he couldn't be in the middle. Which tells me what? Each church has access to Jesus. And each church has a relationship that's non-hierarchical with each other. And each church together can relate to Jesus. And there you've got that picture that's in place. And so I love this system of government, but it always comes down to the leaders that God has provided and that you have selected. So I have one last thought, and I'd like to give some illustrations from the life of a friend, a father in the faith, and a mentor. Look at, look at 1 Timothy, uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3, and uh, look at verse 10. You, however, now Paul is about to die and he's giving directions to the guy that's going to fill his fill a position of leadership after he departs who is now the pastor at the church at Ephesus his name is Timothy you Timothy however you followed my teaching you followed my conduct my aim in life my faith my patience my love my steadfastness my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch at Iconium and at Lystra which persecutions I endured yet from them all the Lord rescued me Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. So now, here's my overall sermon for all of the leaders at Briarwood, this sentence. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you have learned it, And how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Let me just give you, and I'll do this very briefly, a couple of thoughts. And then I'd like to anecdotally illustrate it from the precious treasure that God has given to this church. Our founding pastor, Dr. Frank Barker who then served as a faithful shepherding preaching pastor for 40 years and then continued to serve um, and uh, manifest the wisdom of God in our midst for 23 years as pastor emeritus. 
I have um, I wrote a book on 3D leadership, and in it I encouraged every leader to get three to five models for life from church history, to get three to five mentors in your life, and to get three to five uh, brothers in the in life and in ministry. I'd say the same thing for women as you uh, develop your Christian life and in areas of leadership that God has called you. The same thing you need. We learn by imitation. Get three to five models and select them carefully. Get them from history because the last chapter has been written in their life. And then get three to five mentors that you have to select very carefully. And then get three to five um, like a band of brothers or a circle of sisters that are around you that can throw the flag, that can call out that can uh, that can call you out that can uh, challenge you and hold you accountable I've had the great privilege in God's providence I did not deserve this but in because of where God had placed me in life and ministry I had some extraordinary mentors and now all of them but two are with Jesus I had the great privilege to have Jim Boyce. I had the great privilege to have R.C. Sproul. I had the great privilege to have Jim Baird. I had the great privilege to have Frank Barker as mentors. Now, don't I didn't say disciples. They didn't do life-on-life discipleship with me. They were mentors. And, um, and so I was able to call upon them. And, uh, and I was able to have them available. All the ones that I just mentioned are now with Jesus. There are two that are not yet with Jesus. Uh, one is rapidly approaching home going, uh, and the other still going strong, and that's Dr. Henry Cravendam and Al Martin. Those were the men who I was able to have as mentors in my life. Now, you say, Pastor, I, I do, I, can I get a mentor? Yeah, here's how you do it. You get your mentor the way I got Frank Barker. Can I tell you how I got Frank Barker? I heard him speak at Covenant College on evangelism and disciple, and small group discipleship. I said, I've got to find a way to get more from that guy. That was in the 1970s when I was in college. And then when I was called to the ministry and they asked me to go plant a church that would plant a presbytery in Charlotte, lo and behold, in God's providence, the church that was going to pay my salary for three years was Briarwood, 1983, 84, and 85. And so I got to meet Frank up front. And yes, as I said at the funeral, if you were not there, I sat over in the office at 280. I talked to him and I said to him, Frank, I would like for this to be more than just an arrangement for three years. I would love to have you available as a mentor in my life. I promise you I will not over can I just call you four times a year if necessary? I will not exceed that, and any phone call will not go over 15 minutes. Secondly, can I meet with you twice a year? Once in January, I'll, I'll get over here, and I'll buy your lunch. And then once at General Assembly, I'll buy your lunch at General Assembly. I will have ten questions written out to ask you, and I will promise you confidentiality. Just say anything you want to say. In other words, here's your principle. When you go get a mentor, likely other people are going to want to get that mentor. So you make it as easy as possible for them. And that's what I tried to do. To make it as easy as possible. Just so I could get that access from time to time. And that was life-changing. So when Frank and I were sitting there talking, I remember two things. After I made my proposal, he looked at me. And that's when I began my lifelong imitation of Frank. He said, praise the Lord. That sounds good. I'll tell you what, let's do that. 
I said, okay, I got you, down. Um, uh, you don't have to sign, but I got you. Then the next thing, after we started talking a little bit, I, he then fell asleep uh, while we were talking, which Frank was wont to do because of the long hours he spent in study and prayer at night. Uh, he would fall asleep sometime. Now, people ask me, well, that was the first time you really talked to him. Did you get offended? No, I didn't get offended. He fell asleep, and, um, and I didn't get offended because he did not fall asleep while I was talking. He fell asleep while he was talking. So I was not offended at all. But I tell you, that was one of the most important things I ever did in my life, was to be able to have access to him, to be able to ask him questions. And then in the providence of God, 17, 18 years later, I was called here in 1999 and would have access to him. He called me uh, because I was struggling. I couldn't see why God would be calling me from where I was to here. And I was struggling with it. And Frank called me and said to me, and then he also sent word by John Law Robinson to me. He said, look, if it would help you make your decision, Barbara and I will move from Briarwood and Birmingham. And I said to him, oh, no, Frank, (laughs) listen, if God was to lead me there, actually, I would plead with you to stay there. Would you consider being pastor emeritus and staying there? Your your absence would not open the door for me. In fact, if the Lord called me, I would ask you to be there because I can't think of anything more advantageous than to have access to your wisdom and to be able to call upon you and ask questions concerning your life. He was one of the most humble men I have ever met. As I came and we um, started the, um, and I started as moderator of the session, and I, we had our first pastoral staff meeting in September when I came in '99, and then we had his, um, and then we had our first session meeting. Guess who was sitting there? Frank. And um, and he was just sitting there. And Tom Harris came to me and said, Pastor, I'm going to talk to Frank about not coming to the staff meetings and to the session meetings. I think that's a little difficult for you if that happens. And I said, well, I'm willing to try it. And he said, well, let me tell you, Frank doesn't realize just how much influence he has. He really just sees himself as another staff guy now. That's the way he saw himself. He was one of the most humble, unassuming men. And he never demeaned an activity by his present, by his conduct or his dress or anything. But not, neither did he build up any pretensions about himself. I cannot tell you how important it is to get people like that in front of you. And that we can learn from them. Secondly, continuing the things you have learned is that leaders are learners. Would you like to know how many times Frank would stop me? Would you like to know how many times I would walk up and Frank would be sitting in a car and he would be doing one of three things? He would either be sleeping, reading a book, or praying. Every time when I walked up, he'd be doing one of those three things. And then he would say this to me, Harry, do you know any books that you think might help me? Did you know he was the one that reviewed the books for our bookstore as to what would go in and what would not go in? He was a verbivore. (laughs) He just ate knowledge. He was a learner. 
All great leaders are learners. Once you quit learning, please leave leadership. Leadership is not filled with know-it-alls. Leadership is filled with people who love Jesus with all their mind and want to know it all. And I am so glad to have that example in front of me through him. Continue in the things you have learned, which means you have to be, number three, intentional as a leader. Leaders are intentional. They don't live life serendipity. Do you know why Frank could respond to emergencies so well, which he did time and time again? Is because he had already laid out his life. When you... Here's what you and I need to learn. Most of us can't say no when we need to say no. But the key to saying no when you need to say no is to have a bigger yes. Frank had found the big yeses in life. His time with the Lord in the morning. His time with Barbara in the Word. Family worship. His sermon study time. And when you've got those things in place, then you can respond to the challenges of life. But he had already put in place the framework because he got the right yeses in life. Number four, you have to be ready. And that means you can't be, you can't be subject to self-pity. People tell you all the time as a pastor, well, don't take, you know, if people leave the church or they do this or they do that, don't take it personal. That is one of the most, uh, let me be careful. I want to be careful. I don't want to violate my own principles here. Uh, That's just stupid. I mean, folks, listen, pastors give their persons to the ministry. So it's going to be personal. But here's what they've got to learn. You've got to have a thick skin to keep a thin heart. If you don't have a thick skin, then you'll get a thick heart. You don't want a thick heart and a thin skin. What you want is a thin heart and a thick skin. I happen to be privy to many of the things that I know hurt deeply in Frank's life. Not all of them by any means. But I know he found his solace in Christ and that Christ was his defender. And he never developed a thick heart. He had a thin heart and asked God for the thick skin. Listen, you never get a testimony until you get a test. And when the test comes, that's when God does his work to develop the testimony in our life. So a life with mentors, a life of learning, a life of intentionality, a life that set the nails on what's important in life and make that the framework so that gives you the freedom to function in life. And fifthly, the last thing I'll mention to you is you got to care about who gets credit. I said that on purpose because I've had many people say to me, do you know one of the reasons that Frank was so effective in ministry? He didn't care who got the credit. I know what you're saying, and I agree with you. Listen, 
We wouldn't have campus outreach without Tom Carradine and, uh, and Curtis Tanner. We wouldn't have had YBL without a Phil Reddick. We wouldn't have had Christian Medical Ministry without an Earl Carpenter. We wouldn't have had the Briarwood Ballet without Barbara Barker. We wouldn't have had um, uh, the Birmingham Theological Seminary, Briarwood Christian School, my goodness, Better Basics, John Glasser, a retired 81-year-old FBI agent. All of those things. It wasn't that Frank sat over and figured them all out. It's that Frank made disciples. And these disciples grabbed their burdens and their gifts and their occasions. And these ministries began to explode. And yes, Frank didn't care in that sense who got the credit. But I want you to know Frank did really care who got the credit. He wanted Jesus to get it all. To God be the glory. Great things he has done. I'll give you the last thing of my conviction. I'm sorry, I went over. I'll give you the last thing of my biggest conviction. Right, Frank and I would go to the Westminster Seminary board meeting together. We'd fly up together. And I would be so tired. And we would get, we'd finish the board meeting. We would get on. We'd always try to sit with a, a seat in between us for our books. And then I'd sit on the window and he'd sit on the aisle. And we'd usually have a couple of things to talk about. So we're sitting and they're getting ready to get on the plane. I said, Frank, I have got this big, I just don't know what to do. Can I ask you about it before we get on the plane? He said, yeah. And I got this great lesson from this man of prayer. He said, um, uh, I said, well, let me share it with you. He said, nope, nope, but we need to pray about this first. Not pray about it afterwards. Let's pray about it first, and then we'll pray about it afterwards. And then I'll never forget the prayer. Lord, Harry's got a big problem here, and I don't think he's capable of handling this, so could you come help us? It wasn't exactly your lengthy pastoral prayer, but boy, was it a pastoral prayer. I love the way Frank prayed, to the point. And he was always ready to talk to Jesus. He didn't need to go through a lot of preliminaries. He was ready to talk to Jesus. Then another time that we got on that plane, I was worn out. Now, when you're on a plane and somebody comes in. So Frank was sitting on the window of the aisle. I was sitting at the window. And the biggest human being I have seen in my life came and sat between us. And I wanted to go. I can sleep on the plane. I mean, I can really sleep on it. I was ready to go to sleep. Now, here's how you do it as a preacher. When you don't want to talk to anybody, but you don't want to not talk to anybody, but you don't want to talk to anybody because you want to go to sleep. You're tired. So when they ask you, what do you do? You tell them. I'm a preacher. They will not say another word to you the rest of the day. Now, if you want to witness to them, say, well, I'm a, I speak at conferences. Oh, you do? What kind of conference? Then you're off and running. You should. So this guy sat down, and um, I said, I'm a preacher. And he said, oh, okay. Within two minutes, Frank had his coat open. He has a pocket with 382 gospel tracts in it. And he had already reached in one, he had pulled it out, he had already shared the gospel in three minutes with this guy, and then he turned to me and said, you know, Harry, why don't you talk to him about Jesus for a while? And I cannot tell you the conviction that came over my soul. When I got home, I said, God, would you help me arrange my life so that when those moments come, I'll not only be ready spiritually, but I'll be ready physically and emotionally. 
help me put my life together that way so that I can be ready. That's just one mentor in my life. You've had the privilege to watch him also. Get your mentors in life and your models in life. And keep growing as a leader because leadership counts. God, thank you for the time we've been able to be together. Um, Thank you, Father, for the privilege just to share these basic thoughts of your grace and your mercy at work in the lives of men and women. Would you now bless these who we are about to ordain, whom you have called, fill them with your spirit that they would lead this church so that we might serve you effectively. In Jesus' name, amen. You have been listening to a message by Harry Reeder, Senior Pastor of Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. For more information on the resources available through Briarwood Presbyterian Church, or for more information on the teaching ministry of Pastor Reeder, visit us at briarwood.org or call 205-776-5200.